Hello everyone and welcome to our third and final podcast of our series on intergenerational wealth. I'm Ian Horn, Head of UK Audience Development at CityWire, and I'm joined by John Porteous, Group Head of Distribution at Charles Stanley, as well as Sarah Lord, PFS President and Chief Client Officer for Succession Wealth. In this episode, we're looking at the bigger picture for intergenerational wealth and the demographic shifts that might change the way people pass on wealth. So John, I'm going to ask for your perspective to kick off, as I know that the Charles Stanley White Paper, Book of Stories 2.0, looks at this in detail. So a big question to start with, John, um, what demographic changes do advisors really need to be most aware of? I'm not so sure it's the demographic changes. I think it's the behavioral characteristics and the preferences of, um, of some of those generations. I think it's really important when we think about intergenerational wealth discussions and family discussions and connecting those generations to recognize that not everybody sees things through the same lens. Not everybody um, communicates through the, uh, the same ways with the same expectations. Um, and not everybody has the same communication preferences. Indeed, I think we talked about this in a separate podcast. So I think uh, what, what I would really say that a good advisor, the good planner does is they connect these things. They understand how they need to translate between communication preferences, um, conscious and unconscious biases and behaviors. And they, they knit that together to create a really authentic but engaged discussion. Mm -hmm. and, and John, are there any particular trends? I know to, to kind of still be big picture with it, are there any particular trends you think we should really be aware of? Uh, well, I think, again, it, this comes back to, um, un, you know, understanding what people's beliefs are around money, uh, what money means to them, uh, what their values are. I mean, we, we generally find that, uh, you know, the younger generations are, uh, you know, understand about money either through um, education or through protection. You know, uh, parents tend to either educate their children about money or they tend to protect them and not talk about money, view it as very much a taboo subject. And then the next generation find out more about themselves. And again, I think what's really important is that the planners understand you know, how, how have families come to the conclusions that they have about their relationship with money? Mm -hmm. um, what does wealth mean to them? You know, how much of it is money? How much of it is health and happiness? How much of it is, is sort of balance in life? Uh, and I can't really emphasize enough. It's about the discussion to, under, you know, to unpick and discover these things because each family is unique and idiosyncratic. It, it, it's not a boilerplate kind of discussion. Mm -hmm. Intergenerational wealth is, is really complex because of its difference between each family. Mm -hmm. and, and so, oh, sorry, yeah, jump in. Oh, and, and I was just going to say, I mean, and just to add to that, which is kind of what John's been saying, is that I think, you know, we have to recognise that money is really personal. It's a really personal subject um, across the generations and families don't necessarily talk within their families as to the value of money or what's important to them. Um, and so it's about leaving any bias that you have as a financial planner or a financial advisor around money and your personal views around money at the door when you go in and have these conversations with family members and thinking about intergenerational wealth because what one family member may think from say that one generation could be very different 
to that of the next generation. Um, and it, it's recognizing that personal aspect around money. Mm -hmm. um, so it looks to me like it's about the individual stories, the actual proper listening exercises, rather than trying to track mega trends, essentially. Um, but let, let's still look at some of them trends. I mean, one in particular uh, area to look at is younger people, uh, because there's, there's, it's probably the case that most younger people are missing out on financial planning and advice. Um, so what do we need to do to be, you know, attracting younger clients? How do we do that in a proactive way, Sarah? Yeah, I think, you know, the key around the younger clients is recognizing their needs and what the triggers are likely to be for advice in the first place. Um, and, you know, that's more likely to be around regular saving and investing rather than necessarily lump sum um, saving, investing. They potentially are prepared to take more risk because they're aware of a longer time horizon. Um, mm -hmm. So their risk profile um, can be different as well. That's not to say that applies to everyone, um, but in the main, that's what we find with our clients. And also kind of um, receiving inheritances from their family is, an, is often another trigger um, for when they seek advice, as long as, as well as kind of the common life event, shall we say, of, you know, buying a house or starting a family. But right. those are the main trigger points. And I think as a profession, we've, we've really developed and we, we still, though, really focus on what I call clients of today. Mm -hmm. So the clients of today are the clients that we, you know, um, advisors have grown up with, maybe serviced and looked after for the last 20 years, typically the baby boomer generation. So the parents that are maybe looking to pass down the wealth. And really, we need to be focusing on what I call the clients of the future. So the younger generation, um, because ultimately those clients of, of, of today were the clients of the future 20 years ago. We mm -hmm. just maybe didn't look at it through the same lens and take the same approach as a profession. And I think the key thing for me is just recognizing the differences as to how they engage with advice and what they're looking for from their advisor. So I try to sum it up as the clients of today are really looking for what I would call a human driven but technology enabled approach. Mm -hmm. So it's still very much used to that human interaction as their primary sort of port of call shall we say but as technology is advancing they still want access through technology solutions um, such as portals and things whereas the younger clients are looking much more for a technology driven so technology first but then human enabled so they're still wanting that human interaction but actually they're looking to the tech to support their needs first and foremost but absolutely want to sense check and um almost cross-examine because what we're finding with clients of the younger generation is they've grown up in the age of technology where information is far more readily available so mm -hmm. whilst they have more information available to them it actually confuses them and therefore they want that ability to sort of bounce ideas off or um, share ideas and get a a trusted opinion so you know when you look at it that way it's how as a profession we're evolving um to use technology to support our client journeys more um and i think those um businesses that are adapting to those um that sort of technology drive aspect um, will attract more of the younger clients it's also another aspect around pricing 
um, and kind of the cost of the service of advice because the younger generation do value advice um, but it's how you place a value on that and I think you know businesses need to be more flexible in their approach to charging fees maybe looking more towards subscription type models mm -hmm. because that's what the generation's grown up with so mm -hmm. I think there's absolutely lots of ways in which we can support them, but we just need to be looking at it slightly differently to maybe how we have done in the past. Mm -hmm. And Sarah, actually, to build on that point you make about pricing, how do you actually communicate the value of advice to younger clients? Because I think there, there's not only an issue in pricing things correctly for younger, uh, you know, younger clients, there's also an issue of making sure people realise the actual underlying value of the proposition that's being offered. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I mean, it's a challenge across the profession, full stop around kind of the value advice, and it's really important to demonstrate that value. But I think one of the key things um, is how you incorporate sort of cash flow planning and how you sort of build out that lifetime planning, because, you know, like we just talked about, there are triggers that create that need for the advice. Um, and, and, and so being able to demonstrate the benefits, for example, of regularly saving through cash flow, you know, through a cash flow model or something like that. Um, and it can be fairly um, simple in, in the structure for the cash flow. But again, I think that's a piece of where you can really demonstrate that by following advice or kind of um, taking our lead or our direction, this is an outcome that you could benefit from rather than if you did nothing, for example. And that's, and, and I think tools like that really aid with bringing the conversation to life because it, br it brings the visual to it rather than just the words. Mm -hmm. And John, to bring this back to the kind of demographic side of things uh, and the book of life study, a uh, book of stories, sorry. Um, you know, are there things going on at the moment that indicate that there are real opportunities to actually properly work with younger clients? Are there any changes going on that maybe create opportunities for advisors? Uh, yeah, so I'm just having, um, I'm just reflecting on whether or not it's a book of stories of the meaning of life. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's, I, think, I think, you know, Sarah's talking on a, a number of really, really, really interesting points, which um, I agree with. And I think what's, what's particularly interesting with the younger generation um, and pricing models and engagement is firstly giving them access to advice that's tangible um, and you know I, I think within the current regulatory environment sometimes it's quite challenging to bring a compelling proposition at a scalable way to a price point that that these people would find engaging for you know for that next generation that that that's that's a challenge for the industry uh, but but I think secondly the point that Sarah makes about advice is, is fascinating. I entirely agree with, because I think that the younger generation are looking for things that are more tangible. They're looking for instantaneous feedback. They're looking for things that, um, you know, if, if I pay my money and I engage with this process, I want something back straight away. I don't necessarily want to wait two or three weeks for a suitability report because that's not how I, that, that, that's not how I live. Um, and again, as I think we talked about in another podcast, it's about what precedent has been set by technology and engagement and how I live my life in other industries. You know, how do I, how do I live my Amazon life? How do I live my eBay existence? How do I, you know, do things via PayPal? And why should financial services or me thinking about how I accumulate my assets for the future be so different? So I think there's something really interesting around that. I, I think the point that Sarah makes about, you know, the clients of today 
and we need to think about the clients of tomorrow is also huge as well. Because if you look at um, if you look at the average age of the advisor for as long as I've been in this industry, it's either been 48 or 50. You know, it's always been at that point. And um, at one point, we're going to realize that if we're all 48 or 50, who's actually thinking on behalf of the clients who are 20 to 30? Mm-hmm. Because actually, sometimes it has to take one to know one. Mm-hmm. Because it, you know, uh, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm 49. And uh, that probably means that I see life through the lens of a Gen Xer, no matter how much I might try and convince myself that I think flexibly and I, I, I think broadly, I see the life as a function of my experiences. I'm a, I'm a father of a 15 year old boy. I was brought up in Scotland. That means I've got certain values about money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I kind of think that kids are teenagers, right? So that, that brings with it its own sort of set of baggage. I think what, we, we, what, I think what will be very powerful um, is to start thinking about how we build propositions and how we start the intergenerational wealth discussions, bringing it back to the book of stories, also through the lens of the 20-somethings, not just the 50, 60-somethings, or the 80, 90-somethings. Mm-hmm. Oh. I couldn't agree more with that um, because I think it, 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 it dovetails with what our clients are looking for from us because there is this intergenerational wealth transfer that our clients you know the clients of today are looking to their planner their advisor for that advice and guidance Um, but it's also that aspect of how you bring it to life for the next generation because if we're not doing that as a profession then actually we're challenging the the overall sustainability of our profession um, and of our businesses because we need to be looking at it you know, through that lens of the client, but also through the lens of the business, because the two are so um, sort of closely knitted together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also it's the relevance of what we're doing, because if we're talking to certain people, uh, other generations may not actually view the relevance and therefore we talk about value. But if people don't actually appreciate the importance of what we're seeing, as well as the value of what we're seeing, there won't be that underlying call to action. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to move it on a bit now because another another issue to consider, and this actually looks at both ends of the spectrum, is that you've now got people living longer, having longer retirements, probably greater needs, things like you know care home fees and so on, uh, and that really does impact the way in which wealth is received, when it's received, and how much is received. Um, so you know what is the impact of all of this, John? You know how much are longer lifespans uh, changing the picture for intergenerational wealth? Well, I think it's massive. I think it's absolutely massive because it's not just the visible costs, so the costs of care, but it's the invisible costs as well. So quite often, um, you know, you have to look at uh, family welfare and family well care because often somebody will have to look at their own career choices to make time out to provide care for um, people at a certain age or in a certain position of need. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you want uh, then, of course, you have the, the the long-term care, residential care costs of that as well, and there's a natural tension here, because by definition, we, if you think of a certain generation, Gen X, if we take that as a case in point, we all say, well, of course, there's going to be this great um, wealth transfer across the generations, and this this generation will be the beneficiary of the wealth of the boomers and you know and, and beyond, mm-hmm. but actually, much of that will be spent on the long-term care of people in the needy. And when you start start thinking 
about how this dovetails with lifetime gifting mm-hmm. is quite interesting because from an IHT perspective, one might argue lifetime gifts may be perceived as a sensible thing to do, but how much can you gift when you've got to cover the long-term and unforeseen and unaccountable and unaccruable cost of care? So how do you marry those things up? And then of course, if a next generation is relying on um, uh, 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 an inheritance to pay a mortgage or to pay a debt or to skip a generation to put grandchildren on the housing ladder, well, people are living longer and longer and longer. Uh, and if you're running down the cost of care for the elderly generation, what does pass down through the generations may be considerably less than had originally been anticipated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Sarah, you know, how, how should financial planners account for that? You know, how, how do you make sure that you actually end up with a satisfactory transfer of wealth? Uh, I mean, I think it goes back to to sort of where we started and really understanding the family objectives and and kind of the individual needs, I think is is key here. Um, And and really understanding kind of people's concerns, certainly when I work with clients around people's real concerns around the cost of care, because as John says, it's almost unaccountable. You don't know. The thing with care is, you know, even, even if you know that you would want it, for example, and you'd want it in the home, for example, you you don't know whether you're going to need it, at what level, for how long, um, you know, there's averages, but no one's average. Um, so I think that, that provides the real challenge for planners and for advisors as well, because you're, you're trying to plan for an unknown, um, but at the same time, you're trying to meet the needs of the family. And I think some of it is around giving the family or the elder generation a degree of financial confidence. So by looking at the finances and and outlining if you made this gift now, what impact that would have over the longer term and therefore potentially have an impact on their overall well-being um, in later life. Um, But it's about, yeah, for me, it's really about giving that financial confidence around whether lifetime gifting is appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, because we are seeing far more desire, shall we say, because of longevity, to be able to help earlier. So be able to help during lifetime rather than just on death. And I think people are far more aware that actually I would rather be, if I can afford to, I would rather be giving now or during my lifetime and seeing kind of my child or my grandchild benefit from that because that would actually give me pleasure. Um, because a lot of this gifting um, and the thinking of the intergenerational wealth is actually because families typically are fairly close-knit you know they want to be supporting each other and they do get that pleasure from seeing that you know the grandchild has had a private education or is um, the child is able to buy their first home which they wouldn't have otherwise been able to do so it is that balance I think but we are definitely seeing um clients more interested in lifetime gifting but being able to see the impact you know and that's where cash flow helps for example on their on their own financial future and their own financial resilience Mm -hmm. and Sarah a slightly different question here Um, you know we talk about the wealth transfer quite a lot but we also talk about how financial planning is perhaps you know exclusive to people of a certain net worth it's not necessarily for everybody at least in a kind of full-blown sense um so when we talk about this wealth transfer are are we really just talking about the kind of people who already receive financial planning 
Um, or is it actually much broader than that? Does it really cut across all, all elements of society? Personally, I think it is much broader than that. And I do think that it cuts across um, more of society. I mean, going back to sort of um, comments that we made at the start, money is personal and it's really personal. So wealth, for example, has a definition um, different for different people. Um, so, you know, where, where we're talking about lifetime gifting, yes, there is a degree of financial resource there, um, often termed as wealth, that can help out. But it goes, it cuts across the whole of society, I believe, because, you know, some people, um, wealth is £2,000 and being able to do pay off a debt that improves their lifestyle. So, you know, there is a challenge. There is the challenge of kind of the advice gap um, and how, you know, we, we as a profession can help address that. Because it's not just about, shall we say, the wealthy that need this advice, but it goes across society. And it's that personal views around kind of their own financial resources and what they want to do with it, either on their death or during their lifetime. Going back to my point about helping out family when you can, um, if you're able to, means different things to different people. Mm -hmm. uh, and John, just to bring you in on this one, you know, is the, is the great wealth transfer something that everyone should be switched on to? Uh, I think for all financial planners, that are, um, have clients in, you know, that have family clients, I can't see how you can avoid the market. It, it's such a huge trend. Um, and also, as I think we were touching on earlier, I think this year is the year of what if. You know, we've been through a global pandemic and I think all families would say, you know, what if, um, what would happen to my family? You know, am I remotely prepared? And should I at least be prepared? And I would be staggered that in the hands of a skilled financial planner asking questions with the right tone and at the right time and in the right setting and context, if they didn't have a really fulsome and detailed conversation with families based on those questions that started to say, well, actually, this is how I'm thinking. And some of the points that Sarah is talking about, and we've both been talking about over the course of this podcast, I think are really relevant to that. I, I, I think 2020, mm -hmm. um, if you're not talking about it now, when would you be talking about it? Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, it, it really has heightened, I suppose, people's sensitivity around um, financial resilience. And indeed, as John says, the what if scenarios, you can't hide from it because it's on the news. Um, and so, you know, we've definitely seen it amongst our clients sort of, of wanting to know what happens to my pension, for example, because we tend to think about wealth as should we say disposable capital or um, investments or ISA portfolios, but actually the majority of people have some form of wealth in their pensions. So as John says, everyone should be having this conversation with their clients um, around the what ifs and what do you want to happen? Mm -hmm. um, and, and ask a, a challenging question now. There's, there's a great story um, you know, mentioned in the study about a, a financial advisor in Manchester who, who notes that his Asian clients are more likely when the elderly members of the family uh, need care, they're more likely to take them into their own houses rather than pay for care homes. And I think that kind of thing, um, you know, really highlights the difference in how different cultures and backgrounds might approach these issues. Um, so my question is, you know, what, what impact does culture play? I mean, we know that 
financial planning perhaps isn't as diverse as it could be uh, and people's family structures are ever-changing and you know very nuanced so how does advice account for all these differences how can we make sure we properly understand uh, you know different client backgrounds and Sarah I'll, I'll go to you with that I, I think there's a number of aspects to that. I think, you know, it, it leads to one of the points that I said earlier is around um, kind of leaving own personal bias at the door, sort of when you when you start to have the conversations. And the other aspect is making sure that, you know, one of the great skills of financial planners is that we all demonstrate empathy. We have to have empathy to be able to do the role um, and, and really get to understand our clients. So it's really about understanding the cultures of our clients. I, I mean, I was fortunate enough um, earlier in my career to spend four years working in the Middle East, which has a very different culture to the culture that we have here in the UK. Um, and that was really insightful um, around how people view money and how they live their lives um, to the point that you've just made, you know, their family means actually so much more than maybe we would say, you know, typically it may mean here in the UK and they would have a similar approach of family, you know, family looking after um, sort of the generations and, and, and taking on that care. So I think it's very much about how we interact with our clients and being very open-minded, um, non-judgmental, I think is key as part of the relationships as well, um, because that's how we build that real understanding and that real trust with our clients and being able to give them the support and the advice that they need that is that is important to their culture. Mm -hmm. and, and John, I see you nodding along there. Um, you know, from your studies, you know, what, what have you found about the role of culture? Is it something that we overlook sometimes? Are there things we should be aware of? Uh, well, again, I think Sarah is absolutely on the money by saying, you know, you need to leave your own biases at the door. And I think a good and skilled planner will be highly respectful of culture because culture often speaks to your values and um, either the values of the, cult of the culture or how the culture has informed your own personal beliefs and values. Um, and also, in turn, then talks to, to how you feel and define wealth. We talked, you know, we've kind of covered that earlier, that personal definition of wealth. But, but also, I think it's about the professional engagement and the empathy that we've talked about before. I can't really see how you can get that engagement and empathy unless you're aware and respectful of one's culture. Um, I, in fact, I find it inconceivable that uh, you can create um, a, an effective family um, a, and facilitate a family uh, discussion um, and ignore cultural because, because I really, really believe that it will have really um, impacted people's behaviours and beliefs, as I said previously, uh, values. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and John, going back to the, the younger generations now, um, do their values influence discussion on intergenerational wealth at all? I know in podcast one, we talked about uh, interest in ESG, for instance. Does this kind of thing um, have a you know, real deep impact on the, on the conversation? Yeah, it does. I mean, I think we tend to find that, you know, parents often either educate or protect their children around money, the relationship with money. So you either pass down wisdom 
um, or you protect children from money because you view it as a taboo, almost adult thing, and you don't want to burden them with the issue. And sometimes you do find that that, that has played out in, in how the younger generation see money. But also we need to be incredibly mindful of what are the issues of younger people now. Um, and it's not necessarily the case that they are um, burdened with having too much money to invest and, and what, uh, what equity market should I put it in? Um, more often than not, it's how do I get on the housing ladder? You know, how do I deal with debt? How do I keep my head above water? How do I make sure that I don't make the wrong decisions that, you know, I could regret with some fairly binary choices um, and get, you know, get my get myself in the ladder of life. And I, I uh, and I think, you know, we talked earlier about an advice gap. You know, we, we must often remember that in our industry and profession, we don't necessarily have, we've never had a transaction gap. There are plenty of ways for people to transact and invest their money. What we often have is a gap of the ability to speak to people, to get some quality advice about making those non-financial choices. What I mean by non-financial choices, they're, they're non-investment choices. Mm -hmm. of a financial ramification. So to your point uh, and your question specifically, I think sometimes we need to be really mindful that the priority for some of those younger generations is not about how do I invest, it's about how do I manage my current position and how do I move myself into uh, a position of net asset rather than net liability. Mm -hmm. uh, and Sarah, I mean, there's loads of great stuff that John's just, just raised there. Um, you know, what's, what's your view on the younger people and the conversation, uh, you know, especially things like getting on the housing ladder and possibly the timing of gifting and things like that. Um, you know, how does it shift? How does it kind of shift the dynamic? I think I think um, getting on the housing ladder is a really interesting one now, because I think we're starting to see a, a degree of shift as to it's less of a priority for the younger generation than it is still a, a key component. Um, but certainly in the conversations that we have with the younger clients, um, it is more about kind of um, almost their, their contribution to their own life, if that makes sense, and what makes them happy and focusing, should we say, a bit more on the here and now um, and making their life choices around that. So I think, like John was saying, that has an interplay, I think, as to how they then view sort of their finances and the support that they need. Um, it, it's more about um, almost being given the confidence um, or empowering them to have the confidence in the life choices that they want to make. And those life choices arguably are different from the, shall we say, the clients of today or the, their parents, predominantly around the fact that we've got more global travel. We've got, we are more aware through technology of issues um, happening around the globe. We've got far greater awareness of the planet and our finite resources. So the, there's been a natural shift, I think, as to kind of what, what the values are because of the way in which society has developed and therefore the choices that they can make and therefore what they place value on, shall we say. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's the main sort of aspect I would like to highlight. Mm -hmm. And a quick final question, because we, we, we're almost out of time. Um, but Sarah, how do you deal with them scenarios where people's kind of values are at odds with each other? 
<laughs> so, <laughs> nice big question to dump on you right at the end. Yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> nice easy one for you, Sarah. How do you, how do you, how do you, I guess it's not easy, is it? But uh, no, and are, I think, are there you things know, you can do to kind of make that an easier conversation? And I think, you know, over, over my career as being a financial planner, there have been moments, um, particularly working with families, because, I mean, I have always focused on working with families and working with, should we say, the clients of today and the, the next generation. Um, and I think one of the things that I've always tried to do is really understand, take the time to understand, should we say, both sides or, you know, individual parties' views and values, um, motivators, drivers, um, and some of the, should we say, dynamics of the family um, to then decide how best to tackle, um, you know, um, giving the best advice um, to give the right outcome, should we say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't believe that you can do that where there are different dynamics at play or different views or values without really actually listening to all aspects of it. And I think, you know, um, you potentially, as an advisor, you're potentially in danger of, you know, if it's, for example, the client of today has always been your client, maybe taking their view as the first view and potentially the only view. Whereas you have to be very open-minded to deliver the best advice to the client by listening to everyone. And it's amazing how often the, the theme of listening has, has come up in these podcasts, actually. It seems like the key thing um, to work around these these changing values and in the changing world is, is just to listen. Um, John, do you have any final words before I wrap this up? Uh, well, just, just to, I think, to, to add to the point that Sarah is making, I think when you have these um, tangential values or opinions, first of all, I think that intergenerational wealth is underpinned by dealing with uncomfortable truths. And unless you're embracing and articulating and, and talking openly about those uncomfortable truths, then you're dealing with the family dynamics superficially rather than really getting to the heart of the matter. And I think what good financial planners do is get to the heart of the matter. So I think sometimes it really is all about getting a good conversation, asking great questions, not necessarily um, you know, having strong opinions, but just getting people to talk about it and find common ground. And, point, and the common ground could be around values. It could be around how they want to help other generations. It could be as simple as, well, how do I want people to think about me when I'm gone? What do I want my legacy to be? How do I want to, to treat these people? And find these sort of high level points of commonality because you can more often than not unify people around that than very, very specific and more detailed um, goals. Mm-hmm. Well, John, Sarah, thank you for your time. Uh, this has been the third and final podcast in our series with Charles Stanley on intergenerational wealth. If you missed our previous episodes on starting the intergenerational wealth conversation and handling the transition of wealth, be sure to check those out too. Thank you to everyone who's listened in. I hope you've taken away plenty of information that will help with the challenging conversations to be had around intergenerational wealth.